The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? The recovery process is magical. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing else like it that and that and that we get to witness it every day and be around to see it and to help do whatever we can to foster it. It's one of the greatest blessings I've ever had, but in that sense, uh, these difficulties we know in our lives are, are a great blessing. Depression is a great blessing. There's no other way in to the problem without some kind of precipitating crisis. And so we're in a crisis now. America's in a crisis. The world is in a crisis. And the amount of addiction is staggering. The deaths are, you can't even fathom it at the number of families this has touched. And Almost as scary to me is the sort of low-level misery. It's the lack of wonder and awe of this incredible experience of this, this place, this life. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with my incredible partner, Evan Haynes. You guys seem to love it when Evan comes on the podcast. And after this episode, I know why. I'm just kidding. I've always known why. Because he just has such a calming presence about him. He is so knowledgeable. And he really does care. Sitting down with Evan today was really a special thing because his book is out. And I have had the honor of watching him for the last two years write said book. But really watch the last 11 years of the unfolding that eventually transpired into this incredible book. And so today we are diving in to his writing process and to what makes him so passionate about helping America and the Western world recover. It's not just about addiction, you guys. This episode covers so much. So I'm going to keep my intro short. And with that, here is this week's episode with my amazing husband, Evan Haynes. I want to start by saying that I'm excited that this day has finally come. It has been two years. Really like this book is your life's work, the beginning part of your life's work. As someone who's been able to be with you in the last 11 years and to watch the evolution that is Evan Haynes, it's been a privilege and honestly an honor. Like I think being your partner, and I know that I tell you this all the time, is one of the greatest privileges of my life. You're an incredible human being. Your drive is unlike anything I've ever seen before. And your passion and desire to help people is truly inspiring. And so here we are on the day of your book launch. And 
I want to know, first and foremost, how are you feeling? Well, I feel great. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. Um, <laughs> and of course, I don't believe anything you just said. Why? Well, because I'm, uh, I have a little bit of a depressive personality. So <laughs> someone says nice things about me. I it's hard to hear. find it condescending and patronizing. Oh, wow. Or maybe you just feel sorry for me. Um, Isn't that amazing? The stories we make up in mm-hmm. our head when people are just being like so genuinely kind to ourselves, but we are, we've been so traumatized that like we take it as an insult. Mm-hmm. No. I do the same thing. No. So, but thank you. No, I, and, and certainly of course there's, there's a grain of truth to it. And I can't believe the day has come. I remember, I think the coronavirus, the lockdowns had just happened and we stopped doing outpatient at Oro House in the offices and everyone who worked there was now working from home or we were working out of the sober livings. And so we had this 7,000 square foot office space that I went to all by myself every day. Did it feel kind of like The Walking Dead where it's like a ghost town? Well, it was odd. I mean, there was like trash piling up, all these books and papers I was reading and my food waste everywhere. I mean, no one else was there. I I was like kind of the last man on earth in a way, but it was not that the pandemic happened for my benefit, uh, certainly, but it was kind of good timing in a way. What else would I have done? I mean, other people learned how to make sourdough bread. I learned how to write a book. And uh, it was an odd process. It almost wrote itself. More than that, it almost wrote me. I set out to say something halfway as intelligent. And so I had to learn a lot in order to say more than I already knew. And uh, I learned so much. I would have never been able to predict how much I was going to learn. And it changed me. It changed me forever. Let's go back to Evan 16 years ago, newly sober and trying to figure out life after drinking and kind of just having this moment of clarity where you're like, I can no longer operate like this. In this moment where you're like, okay, I've got to change my life. I want to first talk about the gap between your early sobriety and the beginning days of what is now Oro House. Okay. Well, in my very early sobriety, I remember asking a friend I was going to meet at my very first uh, AA meeting. Why am I so angry? Why did I turn into this like angry drunk, basically? And he says, you'll find out, you'll find out. And um, it didn't occur right away. But I did. You know, I was angry, like a lot of us are. I was angry at my parents. I was angry at my life. You know, and of course, that goes way back. They're, you know, they're upset with their parents and on and on, right? So it took a long time. I I was probably four or five years sober before, you know, I'd kind of done all the steps, done all the things you're supposed to do. And basically, despite all of that, my life was falling apart. So when we met, I was just kind of in the middle of kind of coming out of this uh, crisis, really where Jared, who, you know, we started Oro House together. But before that, we had been failed filmmakers and we'd spent, 
you know, our entire life savings trying to make this movie that completely disintegrated at some point. And uh, I remember telling my sponsor at the time, like, oh my God, the worst thing in the world just happened. And he was like, how do you know? Yeah, little did you know. How do you know? What was to come, yeah. Right. So, but, you know, we were, we weren't homeless, homeless. We were living at a friend's house. And so there was the three of us and each of us going through these crises, the the other friend was going through a divorce. And so we were all going through these crises and, and uh, we were going to meetings and we were going to, went to our noon meeting, which was this beautiful outdoor meeting where we met. And we would, in the evenings, often go to like a sober living house to go to a meeting. And these were like these beautiful mansions. I'd never even heard of a sober living house. I'd heard of halfway houses, which, you know, is what they call them elsewhere. But these are these beautiful sober living houses, mansions on the beach in Malibu. And we thought, my God, we, we could do this. And uh, that was kind of the seed of the origin of Oro House. And we had some help and we started out as a simple sober living party. You were there at the party for our grand opening in June, June 1st of 2011. So it's been a little over 10 years. And um, all we knew, we hadn't been through treatment. I'd been to LA County Jail. We hadn't been through treatment. I uh, hadn't been to sober living houses, but it was probably to our benefit, certainly to the benefit of our clients, because we weren't kind of bogged down by the orthodoxy or traditions that can be condescending, can be patronizing and punitive. We were cool. That was all we, we were just cool with our clients and we hung out with them all the time. Yeah. And over the next several years, you really solidified not only the concept, but the culture that is Oro House that eventually became this book. Yeah, well, exactly. And so Bob and I wrote the book. He gets all the credit really for setting me on the right path from from the get-go or really to... Let's clarify, that's Bob Forrest, who's been on this podcast many a times. Mm -hmm. If you guys haven't listened to his episodes, highly recommend that you go back and do so. So... We met Bob. We were probably in about the first year running the sober living. He referred a client to us. Um, we people had been trying to introduce us for for about a year, and so finally here was this moment where, you know, the famous drug counselor Bob Forrest refers a client, and so he would just come and hang out. He would come and you know hold court around the kitchen table and tell us stories and just share in his incredible way that he has about him and him and I became really close really quickly and uh, you know would talk on the phone and it was mostly just me listening and and learning and I was like a sponge and he would point me in the direction of certain ideas and certain authors and it was funny I I think at one point it was pretty early on he says you know you guys are just it's this light touch you have these few rules if any and you're cool and you probably thought you were being lazy, right? And I said, yeah, we thought, we, you know, we, we felt like frauds. We literally weren't doing anything. And he goes, no, that's it. That's the brilliant thing about it and why this works and why it will work. So that was this kind of embryonic moment that has now grown into this whole, well, into this book that we, that we, that we really wrote together. 
In the early 2000s, millions of households across the world tuned in to watch contestants battle for the last rose or to be the final survivor on the island. Reality TV was beginning to dominate the airwaves and every show needed to be bigger, flashier, and more scandalous than the last. But in the case of one infamous dating show, the real drama was happening off screen and it would shape the future of reality TV. The reality TV series, There's Something About Miriam, seemed like a pretty standard dating competition. Six men vied for the affection of Miriam Riviera, a beautiful model from Mexico. But when Miriam revealed that she was a trans woman during the show's finale, the on-screen drama sparked an international uproar about gender, sexuality, and whether reality television had finally gone too far. Wondery's new podcast miniseries, Harsh Reality, The Story of Miriam Riviera, reveals what happened behind the scenes of this infamous reality TV show and how a multi-million dollar lawsuit and media fallout impacted the lives of Miriam and the contestants and changed the rules of reality television forever. Follow Harsh Reality, the story of Miriam Rivera on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about Poshmark. I'm a huge fan of shopping secondhand. Let's do our best to clear out landfills and buy gently used items. My Poshmark closet has been up for years. I have so much good stuff in there, including, and this is already sold, the flannel shirt that I was wearing in the Nancy Joe, this is Alexis Nyers calling phone call. If you go and find my Poshmark, you will see that in there. Um, but I've sold everything from Christian Louboutin shoes to Stuart Weitzman boots, Chanel clutches, adorable jeans from Citizens of Humanity and for Love and Lemons. I've sold cute sneakers, Ugg boots, slippers, House of CB dresses. I mean... My closet has done so well and I've purchased from Poshmark a number of times. Actually, I just bought a pair of brand new Common Project sneakers that I am obsessed with. It was so easy to list. I literally snapped a few photos of items that I'm selling, added the details and boom, easy peasy. If you're new to Poshmark, you can use my referral code Alexis Haynes and you'll get $10 off your first purchase. I have sold so many items already and the shipping has been so easy when you make a sale Poshmark sends you an email with the shipping label you tape it to the box and drop it off the post office or schedule a local pickup listeners of recovering from reality can get $10 off their first purchase just enter the invite code Alexis Haynes when you sign up that's invite code Alexis Haynes have you ever found weird things in a vagina? Have you found yourself needing multiple partners to fulfill your desires? Hey guys, I'm Dr. Jacqueline Walters, a board-certified OBGYN. It is so important that we know how and when to ask the right questions, whether you're in front of your doctor or just hanging out with your good girlfriends. Now, I wanted to create Dr. Jackie's point of view because sometimes you need to just hear the unfiltered good old Dr. Jackie. I will inspire, uplift, and educate women and men on the who, what, when, and where of things we balance daily. Make sure you subscribe to Dr. Jackie's Point of View and tune in every Thursday. 
You get a lot of pushback. I want you to state your case as to why. I mean, statistically, we know that we have pretty good outcomes as far as treatment goes at Oro House compared to other treatment centers who use different models of care, more traditional models of care. And you guys were rated, and this is not to brag, but it's to say this is like a really huge accomplishment. Uh, Newsweek ranks all of the treatment centers in America, and they have a very thorough process that they use with an outside board to determine this. And last year, you guys were number three, and this year, you guys were number one treatment center in America. But it feels counterintuitive to a lot of people who believe in the traditional 12-step behavioral mod way of looking at treatment. And so I guess my question for you is, why does this work? Your book is titled, Can America Recover? Reimagining the Drug Problem. Why does the Oro Method work? Well, so, you know, we didn't really invent the method. I, I think a lot of credit could be given to uh, a gentleman named Carl Rogers. He's a famous American psychologist who developed something he called uh, person-centered therapy. And what he believed was that each of us has an innate healing ability. And given the right circumstances, that ability of ours to basically heal ourselves can be activated. And what he said was required and, and what the sort of best approach to take to you know, help this process happen is called unconditional positive regard. Now that can be tricky. There's, there's what's uh, called countertransference. So very common with people, not only with mental health problems generally, but with addiction problems, a lot of staff, therapists themselves, you know, licensed clinicians can literally hate their clients, you know, and arguably in America, we hate addicted people. Like what other health problem could we imagine where 93,000 people in 2020, 97,000 people in the last 12 months have died of uh, overdose. So if this was like food poisoning, we would get to the bottom of it immediately be open to any and all solutions and we would fix it. It's addicted people. We just don't really care. We say we care, but you know, we don't really care. Or there's all these unconscious ideas, like maybe they deserve it. You know, this was their bed and you know, now they're sleeping in it or whatever. So for us working with this unconditional positive regard, it's very uh, important that we understand where our own mentality is. And it's all right to be frustrated and it's perfectly normal. But to really see that maybe even especially difficult clients are, are acting out something from, from a great deal of pain or acting out some kind of pattern that, you know, that has been with them for a very long time and, and that perhaps they're trying to push us away. So to be patient, to, to be compassionate, and we call it the compassionate care model, where the word patience actually means suffering. And so to be compassionate literally means to suffer with. Uh, it requires, you know, a great deal of healing on our own part that we wouldn't be able to do that if we ourselves weren't kind of 
feeling okay about ourselves. And, and, and really, I think what it comes down to is uh, if, if we didn't fully accept ourselves, we wouldn't be able to accept our clients. If we didn't understand ourselves compassionately, we wouldn't be able to understand our clients compassionately. If we didn't welcome and hold space for our own shadow and our own darkness, how can we possibly hold space for others? Well, that's exactly right. And I think that in this book, you really lay out clearly what that darkness is. Well, I do, and I, I do it in a way that draws a parallel between America and the addicted person, where we've been using addicted people as a scapegoat so we don't have to look at ourselves. So it's really like America as a family system where the addicted person is the black sheep. And so in the same way that addiction is really a product of deep learning and it's nothing more than, than a habit and what the you know, National Institute of Drug Abuse calls a chronic relapsing brain disease isn't that. They say it is because they can see deterioration in the gray matter of the prefrontal cortex, but that kind of synaptic pruning is actually perfectly normal when it comes to all kinds of growth and development and change, not only in childhood, but throughout one's life. So when you learn a new language, eventually you don't want to have to think about how to speak the language, you just want to speak it. That means any of us who speak English we you know, would have had to think a lot about it every time we spoke. Imagine having to think about speaking every time you spoke. It would be impossible. So same with the virtuoso musician. She doesn't think about how to play the violin anymore. She, she couldn't possibly. She just plays. So that's what addiction is. It's the uh, synapses that, that help to build that skill and build that habit then fall away and things just become automatic. So, you know, there's lots of people and I get it, you know, who are like, oh, well, America's run, you know, by these big corporations and this and that. And I mean, of course, yeah, there's truth to that. And there's people in positions of power who will obviously do anything they can to, to keep themselves in that position of power. Maybe I'm a little more forgiving, but I'd say America is just a habit. It's a habit. It's a system of customs, you know, which is what we call cultural habits. So we have all these cultural habits, these ideas that in fact are quite addictive. We like to hold on to them and we feel very disturbed when, you know, they're threatened. Can you give an example of those? Well, sure. I, I, I mean, a big one for me is ideas around work. We just take them for granted. Well, you got to be productive, you know, or else you're worthless. You know, you have to work a certain amount of hours a week. You have to earn a certain amount of money or you're useless or you're disposable. But these are just ideas. These are just, this just happens to be this way. It could be otherwise. When you're saying this, my mind is kind of like going all over the place because I am thinking about just, yeah, how many belief systems we have in place. And it's like, where did these ideas, where is the origin of these ideas Well, I could tell you about work and I could tell you about work because it ties into our ideas about madness and the birth of the asylum. And these ideas really had their genesis, you know, you could trace it back further, but about 500 years ago. And there was a lot of displacement. This was basically, you know, during the tail end of uh, feudal times. And so there was land clearances that different 
kingdoms would undertake in order to basically hold that land for themselves. There was empires rising and falling and wars and famine and a lot of displaced people. So whereas we had lived in basically tribal societies for thousands of years. And in those tribal societies, we cared about each other more. We needed each other. We They were all different and they changed and they became more hierarchical apparently in certain circumstances or under stress or certain times Mm. of the year or during a harvest. I mean, it really varied. But generally, like if there was a, a kid who was hurt or starving or a member of the tribe who was having a problem, I mean, to exclude someone from your tribe would have been a big deal. Well, now there was thousands, hundreds of thousands of people being displaced who who had no home. So leprosy was a huge problem for hundreds of years. And then sometime around the middle of the 1400s, it just kind of disappeared. They'd done, I guess, a pretty good job of uh, keeping lepers isolated, and they kept them in these basically facilities called uh, leprosaria. They also called them Lazar houses in France, like Lazarus, who presumably had leprosy, who was beloved by Jesus, who sat by Jesus in the afterlife, whereas the wealthy were having a problem getting into heaven. You know, Jesus loved the leper. And so these were usually run by Christian organizations. There was 19,000 leprosaria across Europe. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the 1400s, they were just empty. And nothing happened in them for about 100, 150 years. As these populations of displaced people grew, and as these old ideas of kind of charity were still in place, we now thought, well, let's put the poor and the displaced and the veterans of the Crusades and elderly people in these Lazar houses. That, that was the birth of the asylum. Wow. So what came out of that was? Well, I can tell you what came out of that was the asylum. So the, the mental health yeah. hospital, <laughs> the prison and the poor house. So wow. in, in England, for example, they had the poor laws, which uh, I think began around the, in the 1500s. So the new crime of vagrancy was now a thing. So you had all these displaced, extremely stressed out people, yeah. hundreds of thousands of them after severe crisis throughout yeah. the the land, right? Yeah, well, and then there's there's a difference too. Whereas in the Protestant countries, they were very much influenced by the ideas of John Calvin, who associated madness with the sin of sloth and folly. So sloth is laziness. Folly is madness. And actually, whereas sloth was kind of the bigger problem, madness became really the biggest problem for Protestants um, because not only were they mad or insane, but they also couldn't be productive. So, so this, is, this is the birth of labeling impoverished people, people under chronic stress who are experiencing mental health conditions as a direct result of being a moral or behavioral failure. Well, and it meant God didn't love them. And so actually the Catholic nations even followed suit with the Protestant nations. So the Catholics who had, who had basically invented charity 
where the Protestants came along and said, no, 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 this just means God doesn't love them, went along with it. So even in France, where the charities were a big deal and there were many, many of them, they followed suit. So they started, their their, their asylum was called uh, Hôpital General, the general hospital. And so whereas 50 years prior, the archers uh, of the poor would chase out the vagrants out of the walled, the walled city of Paris. Every city in Europe was walled. By the way, these uh, leprosary were always just outside of the walls of the city. That's how, you know, they're always on the margin. And so they would, uh, you know, chase out the vagrants, close the gates, stand guard with their bows and arrows. Fifty years later now, with the founding of the general hospital, the archers they were now called the hospital archers, and they would go out into the wilderness and bring back the vagrants and put them in the hospital. So, and then in England, they had the poor law, so that's where they started the poorhouse, which turned into the house of confinement, which around the same time America was founded, and of course, based on British rule. So we had the house of correction, which turned into the prison. And so there's this seamless line, and then you look, I mean, you can't help but look at Nazi Germany, where basically anyone who wasn't productive was rounded up and put into a concentration camp. But of course, the British invented concentration camps during the Boer War in Africa. But it's all connected. This is, this is how we look at, and this is the punitive nature of the asylum. It's really an incredible thing to be able to see the direct kind of lineage of the Western world and like how we got here to this point in America. Homelessness. Where homelessness is as rampant as it is, where addiction is as rampant as it is, where a mass incarceration is as rampant as it is. It is in the fundamentals of the Western world, all birthed out of religion, which is the polar opposite message of what Jesus was trying to teach. Right. Where the Lazar houses, at least, they thought that through their charity that they would somehow be themselves redeemed. I mean, but that idea, even that idea has been lost. Lost uh, instead to this idea that, you know, kind of work makes us free. That if you're wealthy, that means God loves you. Uh, you know, all so all our ideas around suffering and who suffers and everything like that, all have these antecedents. They all have this history. And so what I was saying too is like in the same way that addiction never occurs in a vacuum, it always occurs within the sort of matrix of a family. I would say addiction always occurs within this broader social framework because even our ideas about madness have a history. In ancient, you know, if we're talking about the Western world, in ancient Greece, divine mania wasn't a problem. In other cultures, it's not a problem. In other cultures, the spirit world talks to us and it's not a bad thing. And here we would call it schizophrenia. Interestingly, they've done some research, a a professor at Princeton, I believe, where the voices experienced in America are often hostile, violent, threatening, and in cases of schizophrenia and in other cultures and other countries, they're beneficial, they're ancestors, they're deities, uh, and they're friendly and they're benevolent. Mm. And that's the inner psyche 
right? The unconscious. The unconscious, which has now been, what's the word I'm working looking for? Satiating or no? Like, well, it's uh, been abolished. I mean, we're not allowed to be irrational or we're not allowed mm. to express ourselves unconsciously. I mean, it's amazing that we even still have music or art or any of these things that 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 really kind of live in that same continuum that have no quote-unquote purpose, yeah. but to speak to us on some kind of deeper level. You know, something that I talk a lot about on this platform and on social media is the fact that, like, I often express and show my darkness. And for a lot of people, it's really triggering for them because they want me to look at this, look like this shining light, right? It's like, they want to put me on the pedestal of like, this is what recovery looks like. Her life is all together. And I'm like, no, it's very much so not. And so when I talk about my bouts of suicidal depression and, and recovery, or when I talk about the hardships that I go through, it's often really triggering for people. Um, And I think that we're just so conditioned and and that really makes sense now where that conditioning comes from. It's not just from our parents, but it's from society as a whole. Like you can see where this heavy influence was on the culture. You were saying 500 years ago, correct? Correct. Where it was like, if you're not wealthy or if you weren't born into a wealthy family or if you experience hardship then you must have done something wrong. That's exactly it. And there's a whole body of research around it called the just world hypothesis. We talk about it in the book because that's very common. And these are unconscious, uh, unconsciously held beliefs that we use example in, in the book of Job. And, you know, the, the devil and God are having a kind of a wager and the devil challenges God and says, Job only loves you because he's only obedient and loves you because you give him everything. He's got everything he needs. Take everything away and watch, watch what happens. And so God says, okay, takes away his family, his home, leaves him covered in sores on a dung pile. Sounds like an addicted person, almost homeless person. And uh, his friends come along. They're called Job's comforters. First, they don't say anything. They stand kind of in this reverence and their friend who's obviously suffering. And no sooner do they start talking, almost immediately their assumptions about what must have happened reveal themselves. Well, you must have done something. You must have done something wrong. You literally didn't do anything. This guy was as upstanding as, as, as you get. But that's our idea that bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. It's a funny idea. There's people who smoke and drink their whole lives and don't do a, a lick of exercise and live to 90 years old. And we have all these ideas about kind of purity and goodness and that if we eat good and think good thoughts that, you know, we're, we're going to live forever or something. But we're not. And all kinds of bad things happen to good people. Some of the worst things in the world happen to children. Yeah. I was having a conversation with someone and I found myself, you're so eloquent in the way that you speak. And I hope 16 years from now, when I've caught up to you in your current age, that I will have the amount of knowledge and wisdom that you do. Um, But I found myself getting really frustrated. This person is someone who, like me, 
had a really challenging childhood. And as a result of that challenging childhood, could clearly see how they went on to use drugs, but then pulled themselves out of said challenge and turned their life around. And the rest of their family is still very much so suffering. And they're sitting there, you know, basically saying exactly what you're saying, that they're lazy and that they're, they have no drive, no desire to turn their lives around. They would rather just like live off welfare and just be welfare babies and live off the system. And I found myself literally going nuts trying to explain to them why that's not true. Well, they should read our book. They will. But I just think it's so interesting that even those of us who have recovered— still have these really ingrained oh, yeah. belief systems. Well, we talk about that, like I'm clean now. So what? You, I, everyone else is dirty or, yeah. you know, I'm better now the than I was before. Use. The language is, is really something. And it was all such an eye opener for me. And it's always, it's funny if you talk to somebody like in recovery and I have to watch myself. It's like everything bad always happened in the past. Now it's good. It's very always kind of dichotomous that way. And it always, uh, coincidentally, it, you know, passes ourselves off in the in the best possible light now, currently. Oh, the ego. Yeah. Oh, the ego. Yeah. I mean, our own ego, but also the ego in the recovery community is really profound. And I think that going back to, yeah, like talking uh, openly about the challenges that I've had, Often people are like, well, then why would I look to you for guidance? And it's because this is the real world. Like mm -hmm. challenges, just because you turn your life around and just because you're on the, the road towards healing and, and you're, you know, doing all of the things that you in quotes should be doing doesn't mean that that life isn't going to continue to show up. And it's funny because you hear that in recovery a lot, that like living life on life's terms is so hard. But then when you actually start talking about that, a lot of people, just because of living in this puritanical culture that we do live in, are often like, Ugh, then now you're, you're too messy or you're too dirty or you're too challenging to have a relationship with, to stay here with, to consume content of, you know, because it does, it illuminates that pain body yeah, and those all of those things we accuse other people of, we're always talking about ourselves. So it's it's actually really helpful to start to notice ourselves and see how we're talking about other people. And we talk about that a lot in the book too. I mean, even uh, Donald Trump or all these sort of polarizing figures where we imagine we're so much different than than those people, but. That's us. And it's okay. So someone could understand the book as a kind of a derogatory insult, like, oh, well, like as if uh, there's, there's a chapter, America is addiction. That was actually the initial title of the book. But there's a whole chapter, America is addiction. Well, that's not a bad thing. Are addicted people, is there something wrong with addicted people? The recovery process is magical. I mean, there's nothing... There's nothing else like it that, and that, and that we get to witness it uh, every day and be around to see it and to help do whatever we can to foster it. It's one of the greatest blessings I've ever had. But in that sense, 
these difficulties we know in our lives are, are a great blessing. Depression is a great blessing. There's no other way in to the problem without some kind of precipitating crisis. And so we're in a crisis now. America's in a crisis. The world is in a crisis. And the amount of addiction is staggering. The deaths are, you can't even fathom it at the number of families this has touched. And almost as scary to me as the sort of low-level misery. It's the lack of wonder and awe of this incredible experience and this, this place, this life itself that we think we're just, again, just here to work, just here to kind of punch in. And it, it's this trip from the, you know, the maternity ward to the, to the crematorium and that's it. And it's over. I mean, it, it's gotta be, there's something else going on. And I believe, I believe we're here to reduce suffering. So I, I would look at all the things we talk about, trauma, the ways children are mistreated in this country and around the world, and even just starting there. If we were to reduce and eliminate the suffering of children alone, we would transform this world. It would be transformed. It wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize it. So first, we've got to imagine that that's even possible. I was going to ask, well, okay, so if America is addiction... What is the reimagining? It's reimagining the drug. Uh, you know, I, I talk about this in ancient Greece. The word for drug is pharmakon. It also means a poison. It also means the antidote to that poison. It also means a spell and the antidote to that spell. The word pharmakos is their word for scapegoat because the scapegoat is basically a purgative that would heal a community of its ills. You would put all your troubles onto the goat and send it out into the desert and problem solved. <laughs> so drug addicts are the pharmacos. Drug addicts are our drug. Drug addicts, homeless people, poor people, prisoners, victims of war, the environment itself, ideas around these things are our drug they mean that we can stay asleep or whatever the drug does for us. It helps us not feel pain. So our whole culture in that sense is a drug. What we need to do, I believe, is basically, uh, and, and this was an, an idea I stole from a man named Peter Kingsley, a brilliant classicist, and I would even say a Jungian, is we have to kind of fight the spell the potion with another spell. So that's what we're doing by using our imagination and seeing drug use for what it really is, seeing the way we treat drug use for what it really is, seeing things that seem so mundane, work, food, clothing, love, fun, as something actually really profound and like magic. I love doing life with you because I do feel like even though we've had lots of challenges in the last 11 years that have come our way with the mundane things, right? <laughs> that we both create the magic 
and that we're living lives that work for us and that we are willing to question everything and to get really clear on what who we are and what our desires are and who we're serving what, and we're, what serving. we're serving yes and who we're serving exactly and then living this life of service um, that is led by our spiritual selves as, along with, you know, I guess you'd say like our higher selves and, you know, and our human selves. How would you say that? Well, I like the idea of uh, Gershom Sholem, who in the 40s, 50s and 60s made uh, Kabbalah popular again. It had basically gone into... Uh, it had gone kind of dormant since the Middle Ages, where it was had really been developed in Spain. He comes along in the 1900s and revitalizes it. And he talked about uh, the selim. Starts with a T. The selim, and the selim is basically the astral body. It's your shadow, not in the Jungian sense, but in that it's a shadow. It's always with you, just outside of you, and it follows you around. It's been here since before you were born, but it's you. And so in Cases of prophecy, Moses, say, in the burning bush, that image, that vision that he's having isn't some outside thing. That's his selim. That's his astral body talking to him. So in a sense, we've left breadcrumbs for ourselves. We know mm. everything we need to know. And we're trying to speak to ourselves through this kind of this veil. It's very porous. And maybe some of us are more porous than other people yes. and we can move back and forth between this not other world but this invisible world that's really with us all along yeah it's an honor like i said to be your wife it's also an honor to be able to serve with you on this planet and i am so excited to see where this book takes you Right now, Evan is in school right now to get his PhD in psychology. I was going to say, it took me back to school. It, it, yes. It, if people are half as interested in what we wrote as we were writing it, I think they're, they're going to enjoy it. It like lit a fire in me yes. and sent me back to school. <laughs> so I'm on this trip. I can't even believe they're going to give me credit to keep kind of going down this road and following these threads. And yeah, eventually I'll become a licensed psychologist. A doctor. Sure, doctor of psychology. Dr. Evan. Mm. I look forward to the more books that are coming. There will be another one. I should one. say, I look forward to the books to come. I look forward to seeing the way that you serve. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Where can everyone follow along with you and where can they buy your book? Well, they can find me on Instagram at It's Evan Haynes. So you can find the book, Can America Recover? Reimagining the Drug Problem on Amazon.com. Brilliant. Thank you. This week's affirmation is, I am born to do great things. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, follow along with us, leave a review. It means so much to me. 
There are new episodes of Recovering from Reality every Monday, and you can follow me on social at Recovering from Reality or visit my website, recoveringfromreality.com. 